Hey listeners, welcome back to the pod. It's Jazz here with Scott Fuller. Uh, Scott, welcome back to the show, mate. Been long. Jazz, good day. It has been a while, but and it's been a very, very busy, uh, <laughs> busy time in between podcasts, mate. But I uh, really appreciate the invitation back on. Uh, Scott, do you quickly want uh, want to uh, give listeners, listeners your background before we kick into gear? Yeah, no worries, mate. So look, I'm the Chief Investment Officer at the Motley Fool here in Australia. I've been at the Fool for 11 years. Chief Investment Officer for the past three or four. I actually don't know the number. I should I should work that out. But uh, <laughs> about that long, I uh, have run Motley Fool Share Advisor for 10 years plus. Um, before that, I worked in business, uh, lots of commercial roles with kind of food companies. Um, and the Motley Fool, for those who don't know, is a privately owned financial services business based in the US. Uh, our, our mission is to make uh, people, Australians in this case, smarter, happier and richer uh, by giving the best stock advice, personal finance advice and education we can. So that's that's me and that's who the Motley Fool is. Why is it called Fool? I, you're not trying to make fool of the people. <laughs> it's a great question, mate. So uh, the, the word or the phrase comes from Shakespeare. And in the Shakespearean language, the Motley Fool, so Motley being multicolored, and Fool was the Shakespearean word for a court jester. Uh, he would entertain the king and he was the only person who could really tell the king the truth without losing his head. So when there were some hard truths the king had to hear, his dukes, his viscounts, his, his uh, serfs couldn't tell him the truth or there would be uh, there would be trouble. But the court jester could make it, dress it up with a bit of humour, a bit of comedy, a bit of a show, but still make a serious point. And the Motley Fool's two founders are both English majors. They like Shakespeare. And so, yes, the, uh, the, the line comes from the, the play As You Like It, where he says, a fool, I see a fool in the forest, a Motley Fool. And that's where the line comes from. Let's let's make markets fun as well. <laughs> let's do it. All right. We'll do they, they're, kind, they're kind of already fun when you look at the VIX. It's sitting in 20s and 30s. Uh, but what's your take on the markets currently with what's happened so far this year? And uh, mm. where do you see it? So this is a crazy year, Jason, as we all know. Um, we, of course, have had war in Ukraine. We're still feeling the after effects of COVID. We've got China. We've got inflation, interest rates. There's so much going on. Uh, macroeconomically, ironically, as much as COVID was a big deal, it was singular in its impact and kind of reasonably understandable, right? Uh, obviously a human tragedy, but understandable from a financial perspective because there was no additional or, or underlying economic concern. It was simply a health emergency that we responded to with economic tools, which shut the economy down and then got it going again. And so that was kind of, it was a weird recession. It was a weird slowdown. We're going into 2022. We're back in the 80s. And if there's any benefit in getting old, it's that I've kind of seen this one before. We, uh, I, I was only young back in the early 80s, but the idea of really, really high inflation, potentially stuttering economic growth, what they call stagflation. Normally, if you get high inflation, you get it with high economic growth. Stagflation is inflation with not much growth. And that's the risk of the period we're going into now. So we've kind of seen this happen before. And by the way, inflation has been low for 20 years, almost 30 years. That's unusual, really unusual. And so, again, we're kind of going back to the future or forward to the past, whichever way you want to look at it, uh, because we, we are kind of back in that kind of environment. The challenge is that for most people, they haven't been adults through or even worked through this sort of cycle before, or even the amateurs haven't invested through this sort of cycle, because you had to go back to the 80s, maybe early 90s to get back to that sort of scenario. So it stretches the brain, stretches the memory. Uh, and if you haven't been there before, you've got to learn about it for the first time. At least you've got some sort of historical precedent. So that's kind of where we are. And the markets, markets responded really, really differently. And it's a really interesting contrast. You ask about markets, plural. It's a really good point because on one hand, you've got the US market that's fallen much more significantly than our market here. But our market 
So, so it's fallen in the US largely because the big tech companies, which, be, which made up the, the largest bulk these days of the big indices, the S&P 500, um, as, it, as they fell, it fell. Here in Australia, we have banks and miners that make up the vast bulk of our index. And it turns out banks have had a nice comeback from COVID. So they've kind of been lifting while the rest of the market's been falling. And resources prices, iron ore, oil, have also been rising, oil because of the geopolitical issues. So you've got this really weird scenario where at a total market level, you've got slightly different things happening. If you go into the sectors, you've got a really, really different story. So oil's been doing great. Iron ore, pretty good this year, not so great in the last month. Uh, financials, kind of okay. Tech and growth just absolutely getting smashed. Consumer discretionary suffering because of the risk of an economic contraction or recession if rates go up too much. So lots of stuff happening under the water, even if at a total level, it doesn't look that uh, look like that much is going on. So are you alluding to that there's a secular shift in the market from growth and tech to more value and uh, commodities? So that's a good question. I think it's, that's absolutely true in terms of what we have seen. I'm not a thematic investor. I don't try and do trends or cycles necessarily. So, and I don't know that we can necessarily predict, particularly growth and value, right? It's hard to know. It's absolutely true right now that, I don't want to get into the algebra necessarily on a podcast, happy to if you want to, but basically uh, when rates are really, really low, the cost of waiting for profits to come in years time, five years, 10 years, 20 years, is not much because the, the inflationary impact and the growth impact is simply not much. So a dollar today is worth 99 cents in a year's time, 98 cents in a year's time, something like that, because inflation is so low. And so if you've got to wait five years for a growth company to start delivering profits and cash flow, it's not that expensive. Once inflation hits 8 9%, as it has in the US and UK, and probably will here later this year, then waiting five years for that, all of a sudden a dollar becomes worth much, much less in five years than it otherwise would have been. Now, again, so if that's, if that's unusual, then and kind of you listen to have a think about that. But what it means is growth companies are less valuable in a high inflation environment than a low inflation environment if they're unprofitable and if profits come down the, down the track. So it makes logical sense that at least as far as we've seen, people saying, hey, if I thought company X was worth a dollar six months ago, it's probably worth 90 cents now, maybe even 85 cents now. That's logical based on higher inflation, higher interest rates. And by definition, again, it makes, relatively speaking, value-style companies, cheaper companies who are making money right now, it makes them more attractive valuation-wise. So that's mm-hmm. happened. Whether that's a continual thing, whether it's a one-off adjustment, um, how long these things last, no one really knows. Everyone has their guess and can make their speculations. But um, realistically, we don't know. But yes, that's absolutely been the case. But it's important to move away from just the sentiment has changed to there's a real mathematical reason why those relative attractiveness of those two groups have changed as a result of higher rates and higher inflation. Mm-hmm. So do you think uh, that Fed this time is going to stick to its mandate of bringing the inflation as low as possible, uh, even if that means that we see a demand destruction or recession? Yeah, I do actually, mate. I really do. Um, and in fact, I don't know if I'll be able to find the quote while we're chatting, but Jerome Powell effectively said as much. Um, it was a pretty, it was a pretty dramatic uh, comment. It was quoted in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I'm literally scrolling madly now, see if I can get to a, uh, see if I can get to an answer. Mm-hmm. But it was, it was very, very, very serious. He basically said, "Look, we will do whatever it takes. There is no, um, you know, nothing else is, uh, nothing else is more important than inflation. We will, we will get it fixed." Here we go. I found the quote. Um, he says, 
Quote, restoring price stability is an unconditional need. It is something we have to do. There could be some pain involved. He goes on to say, we will go until we feel like we are at a place where we can say, yes, financial conditions are an appropriate place. We see inflation coming down. We will go to that point and there will not be any hesitation about that. So the Fed couldn't be any clear. They may change their minds. They may get scared off. Things might change. But right now, based on that comment, that's a really, really, really clear quote. Very stark saying, Mm -hmm. yep, we will do whatever it takes to get rates down. And realistically, the market went, okay, that suggests there is more likely to be a recession than we thought. I think that's absolutely true. So is it fair to say in that case that it's very hard, it's highly unlikely that we'll see a Fed put this time? Um, I think it's very unlikely, yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. It's always hard to forecast uh, central bank actions because circumstances change and Mm -hmm. they will do what they need to do. But they have been really, really, really clear this time around. If there's going to be any heavy lifting done by governments, it's probably going to have to be fiscal policy. That's taxation and spending. Um, Because central banks around the world have basically said, we're in a fight. Uh, I won't say a fight for our lives, but not far off it. We're in a fight now. We must get inflation under control. We must beat this thing no matter what what it costs. Uh, Mm -hmm. And and Powell's comments are really clear about that. So I can't see a scenario in which they will step take the foot off the accelerator and say, okay, 5% inflation is okay, 6% is okay. They want to get to two. They've said two is their target. They're going to do whatever it takes to get there. Um, there will be some pain involved, as he said. That's pretty clearly, in my view, um, again, unless and until they change their mind, they always could. But that's, that's a pretty clear sign of exactly what they're going to do. So can I make an assumption of an assumption uh, that the, if the, so the underlying the base assumption here is that there is no Fed put. And yes. if there is no Fed put and their target is to control inflation, mm-hmm. uh, then the next assumption that you can make is that markets are probably going to head lower. So not necessarily. This is where it gets difficult, right? Because it depends on what markets are already assuming. So, so, it, it's, so, it's uh, reasonable... so just to, just to that on, yeah. point, let's just yeah. talk about the indices S&P 500, let's say. Yes, yes. So it depends on what the S- so. It's true that in a case where interest rates go up and inflation is high, that should slow the economy, possibly to the point of recession, while the Fed gets inflation under control. That would hurt company profits. That would hurt the uh, value of companies on the S&P 500. So that's fundamentals low. So let's leave share price out for a moment. It's, it's likely that rates go up, uh, Economic conditions get tougher in terms of consumption. Profits come down or don't rise as fast. And therefore, companies are objectively, not share price, but objectively worth less. The next question is what happens with share prices, which is your question. And the reason I want to set it up that way is because with share prices, whatever happens next always, always, always depends on what the market's currently expecting and then how it responds. So, for example... We've seen situations during earnings season, and let me use an analogy, I'll come back to the S&P. We've, we've had circumstances where companies have delivered terrible, terrible, terrible profits. Profits have fallen 60, 70, 80%. And share prices have jumped 30%. And you say, hang on, how is it possible that when, when company profits crash, the share price goes up? And the answer is always because the market expected it to be even worse than that. And so that's the situation we think about taking the macro reality and even forecasts and then comparing to share prices the question about what happens next for shares is what is the market currently thinking 
And what does the new information make them think differently? So if, for example, the market's already expecting and already pricing in all of that bad news, because that quote was from a week or so ago, um, if that's already priced in, then from here, shares actually might be fairly valued. They might rise from here, not because the Fed's not serious, just because the market's already factored that forecast into the share price assumption that we're already making. And so that's where there's always a disconnect. And you've always got to do these questions separately. Same with doing any company analysis, right? What's the company going to do? And what's it priced for? The company's going to grow at 10%. If the market thinks it's going to grow up 40%, those share prices are going to crash. As I said before, if it's going to decline by 10%, but the market thought it was going to decline by 40%, those shares could rally and rally hard. So we can't just look at the macro and extrapolate to share prices. We have to start with what does the macro look like? What does the market already think? And therefore, what change is coming? And where will share prices go as a result? And that's why it's much, much harder than just being able to extrapolate the macro. Beautifully explained. But in your opinion, is it already priced in the market or it's not? I don't know. Um, the, the honest answer is I don't know. Uh, if I thought it was, you know, if I knew that it was priced in, uh, I would go and you know mortgage my house, sell my house, sell my car and buy shares and make a fortune. If I thought it wasn't priced in, I'd sell everything right now, sit on the sidelines and wait for the crash to come. I don't know, mate. I really don't know. And I'm lucky to work for an organization in Motley Fool where we don't have to have a view when we don't know. You know, most economists have to have a view and answer that question. Um, I don't know. I would say that we don't have to look back very far, in fact, less than two years, to see what happened during the COVID crash about what was priced in and what wasn't. Those people who said the market fell in March, February, March 2020, and they said, I'm not going to get back in until COVID's over. Well, COVID's not over. The market's rallied all of that loss and more while they waited for COVID to be over. So I think that's a really nice analogy. And it's why I don't try and honestly make the play this game because they're kind of binary outcomes. If you sit in the sideline while the market jumps 20%, you miss that entire upside. If you wait, sit in the sideline, the market falls 20%, yeah, you've copped the downside. But when the market goes back to original levels and higher, and it always has, I'll get to that in a sec, then being out of the market can be expensive. So honestly, sometimes Howard Marks is a great investor. If you've talked about Howard Marks before, he talks about there's this two by two matrix. You know, there's sort of four square matrix. On one side, you've got, is it important? Then the other side, you've got, is it knowable? And you can't line them up. If it's important and it's knowable, then you better spend a whole lot of time doing it. If it's unimportant and knowable, don't waste your time. If it's important but unknowable, well, it just is what it is. You can't know, right? And so for me, future, future expectations of markets are just in that box. So I have forever and a day, literally since I started investing seriously, um, I mean, I started investing 20, oh, geez, almost 30 years ago. Um, uh, you know, for the first couple of years, I stuffed around and did it all badly. Once I started investing seriously, I've never tried to time the markets ever because markets go higher over time. And the thing I said I was going to come back to is, I'll, I'll give you a quote, a line, and it's a bit unwieldy. I've got to, I've got to try and refine it, but let me go with it because I hope it helps your listeners. Here's the line. The market has never yet failed to get back to and then surpass a previous high. Now, if that's true, the further we are now from the last high, the more upside is baked in just to get back to that point and then higher. Mm-hmm. And I used this exact line, this exact line in 2020 with our, with our readers and members. And I said, hey, I know it's scary right now. The market's down 20, then 30, then 38%. But I said, the market's never yet failed to get back to that level. I didn't know when it would happen. It happened quicker than I thought. But I said, from this point, even if it goes lower first, once you're down 40%, the recovery from that point is close to 70%. Now, if you miss the recovery and plenty of really experienced, high-profile, intelligent fund managers miss the recovery. 
So I just simply said, look, I don't know how long it takes. I don't know when it happens. What I do know is the market has never yet failed to get back to, then surpassing, or let's go higher than a previous high. Whenever it's lower than that, I kind of reckon that's money for jam. That's money on the table. You're like, unless, unless we've actually seen the peak of capitalism, unless we go back and say, you know what? 2021 was as good as it got. It was as good as it got. The market never, ever got higher than that ever again. Bugger, that's a shame. Unless that's true, then the lower it goes, the more attractive it should be to own shares. Even if they go lower in the meantime, it's worth holding your nose, kind of girding your loins and saying, this sucks, but when the recovery happens, look how much upside there is. Mm-hmm. So I like the metrics that you mentioned, important and knowable. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think that's enough. great. Yeah. Uh, Howard Marks number, not mine, by the way. I can't credit <laughs> for it. But if a crazy person like me was pointing the gun at you because you work at Food <laughs> and you know something, <laughs> yep. what is your gut saying? I'm pausing, mate, because there's an index response and there's a market or company by company response. And in saying that, what I'm saying is, I talked before about the fact that over the last six months, oil has gone up, financials have come up a little bit, uh, tech has crashed. And so if you're thinking what's coming next, I think we'll actually see a combination of company-specific factors and macro factors that impact individual companies and therefore the market. So if I break it up, uh, for example, I think banks are in for a tough time over the next few years, potentially, right? Because property growth is going to stall or go backwards. Bad debts are probably going to increase slightly. And maybe they get lucky and make more margin as the RBA increases rates, which is the bull case. Or they can't increase margins because competition remains really strong. And so they have the same margins, but higher bad debts and lower profit growth or lending growth. So profits fall. So I don't think the banks are going to go anywhere and they might go lower. I also expect that cyclically high commodity prices, like oil, for example, won't stay this high for the long term. So if I look at the ASX as a, as a market and say banks are a third or 40% of the index market cap, oil is probably another 10-ish percent. If somewhere between 43 and 50% of the market goes nowhere or falls, it's hard for the rest of the market to actually put on gains. Mm-hmm. So I'm not trying to hedge my bets here, but what I am saying is I think at a macro level, I think if I was a betting man, I'd say the market's higher 12 months from now. Right. But at an ASX 200 level, just mm-hmm. as we haven't fallen as much as the US when their tech stocks were crashed, mm-hmm. when the recovery comes for those growth companies, I'm not mm-hmm. sure the index will do as well on the way back up again for the reason I've just outlined. So mm-hmm. if I was a stock picker, and I am, uh, I would expect that, for example, tech uh, communications, probably broad industrials, are probably going to have a good next 12 months. Mm-hmm. I think banks are probably flat to down. I think oil's probably flat to down. I have no view on iron ore. So it's always hard. If, if you ask me about the S&P 500, I think the S&P 500 is higher in a year than it is now because of the components, that you know, the tech components in the, in the index. But I don't know if the ASX 200 because there is that secular company-specific stuff. Well, it's, almost, it's almost cyclical, but it's there's company cyclical and there's economy cyclical. And those two mm-hmm. things are kind of working at cross purposes, I think, over the next 12 months for some of the index. And that's mm-hmm. going to make it a harder thing to forecast. Mm-hmm. That makes sense? Yep, definitely. Um, okay. Now, with the rates mm-hmm. target that Fed has in mind, and when you yes. look at the Fed's future fund rates, it's yep. sort of still pricing in another 0.5 and a 0.5 for the next two to three months, right? Yep. Where do you see this whole 
Fed operation pausing or stopping? So I think the market knows what the Fed's planning to do. Uh, mm-hmm. That's the point of that forward guidance. So the next half mm-hmm. and a half won't surprise anybody. Mm-hmm. And it's probably already baked in. We saw the S&P 500 fall uh, one night a couple of weeks ago by 4%. Mm-hmm. I responded to that to Powell's comments effectively. That was that that was that big fall. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the market's expecting that. I think the market's probably expecting a bit more than that. I think we all know it's hard because the, it's hard because the, the the logical answer of what the market might do are always different. Mm-hmm. The market's got no excuse for being surprised after mm-hmm. Powell's comments by what happens next. They mm-hmm. should be pricing in those two plus more this year, and maybe even early next year, depending on how hard and how fast the Fed goes. Mm-hmm. So. The market genuinely has no excuse for getting this wrong, but mm-hmm. the market is the market, and you know this is a human and trade is a human. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I, I don't have really a strong view. I would, I wouldn't be all surprised just because people are people. If the market overreacts on the downside, if the rates continue to go up faster than some people think, mm-hmm. so the the the, rea- you know, the the reality is markets always fall faster than they go mm-hmm. up. You don't, you never see a four percent overnight jump. On better news, you see a slow, mm-hmm. gradual increase. You see a big, big overnight fall on bad news because that's just the way people think. Mm-hmm. So I think we'll get more volatility, uh, but I don't think the market should be surprised by what the Fed is going to do, given what it's already said about what its plans are around inflation. Does that, does that answer your question? Yeah, sure. Uh, let's drill down a little bit uh, from macro to sort of micro. Awesome. What would be your favorite picks for the year, I guess? Uh, whether it's the sector or whether it's the stock, however you want to go, whether yeah. it's the ASX or whether it's the uh, NASDAQ, whatever it is. Cool. So I will say that when you say for the year, I don't have a holding period in mind less than five years for any recommendation I ever make. So yeah. I, have, I have no one year view. I don't, I wouldn't. In fact, I would actually say people don't invest for a year because if you invested for a year in March 2019, then in March 2020, the market fell 40% and you know, you can't predict these things. So I would always invest for longer periods of time. But if you're saying right now, what are the best ideas I've got for the next five years? Um, I'll answer it that way if that's okay. Um, I don't do thematic and I don't do sector. I just don't. Uh, there are some things, there are some sectors that are more attractive than others where I look for opportunities, but I don't buy sectors. I don't buy themes in and of themselves. It does tend to be the case that I end up investing multiple amounts of money against single companies that fit a theme because they all have the same uh, business model or the same tailwinds or something but I don't look for those first. I'm not a top-down investor. I'm a, I'm a bottom-up investor, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, that being said, uh, I think, so I think, for example, that investing in businesses like Amazon and Google, I own both of those. Uh, in Australia, the NASDAQ ETF, NDQ ETF, I own that as well. That's, to my mind, a no-brainer for long-term investors. Um, mm-hmm. Although it can't go lower, just mm-hmm. you're getting, you're getting some of these companies that are on sale, like hugely on sale. And they're still growing. Amazon and Google are growing revenues at 20% a year. Mm-hmm. And you kind of think, you know, if you grow at that sort of rate over any length of time, these are going to be much, much, much bigger and better businesses in years to come. Apple's buying mm-hmm. like a ton of stock right now. I don't own mm-hmm. that. I, don't, I haven't recommended it, but it's buying like a ton of stock. Um, again, short-term issues, supply chain issues, all that kind of stuff. But in five years' time, is Apple any less dominant than it is today? Is, is Amazon any less, you know, has it got any less momentum? Is Google any less dominant in search? No, I don't think so. So I think mm-hmm. these big tech behemoths, while everyone's hating on them, I think it's a fantastic time to go and buy some shares if you've got a long-term view. Again, no view about next week, next month, next year. But if I'm going to put these under a mattress, I can't think of any better businesses to find than some of these big, well-known US tech names. They're just, they're on sale. They're super cheap. So that's that's one place. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd apply the same here in Australia. I think there are, uh, 
while I said the market prices stuff in, and it does, the market always reacts emotionally and tends to either underreact or overreact. Um, and I think there's a real opportunity for investors in some local e-commerce, maybe even some local retail, um, that is offering really, really high dividend yields in some cases, or just are growing really strongly in other cases. And the market just doesn't, it's not paying attention. I think some really big opportunities there. I'm looking at the moment at a whole lot of software companies. Uh, I haven't got a current recommendation that we're looking at some because they've just, again, been beaten up. And there's nothing about their business fundamentally. Yes, there is a reason, as I said at the beginning, for their shares to be lower than they were six months ago because of the rate increase and inflation. But mm -hmm. these are really high quality businesses. And if and when the Fed gets inflation, then RBA gets inflation under control. Mm -hmm. When we're back to the sort of inflation rate we used to have, and these companies you can buy today at a cheap price, mm -hmm. I think the market's overreacting to the short term as it always does and underreacting to the long term. I think if you can find businesses that have really bright long-term futures, but whose shares have been smashed by short-term concerns, that's mm -hmm. exactly the sort of company you want to own. I don't want to own. Um, so mm -hmm. if you look for enterprise software business, um, consumer facing software e-commerce businesses, uh, some retail I think is, is attractive. Um, there's not a lot of value in the safe, the so-called safe stuff, because it's already everyone's already run to that. So if you can be a little bit counter-cyclical, not, not because you try and play the cycle, but if you can think, contrarian is probably a better word than counter-cyclical. You can be a little bit contrarian and say, hey, everyone's rushed over here to one side of the ship. The ship's listing dangerously to one side. I know mm -hmm. the other side, because that's where the opportunity probably is. Mm -hmm. um, you're going to have to have a stomach for volatility, but I think that's where I'd be, I'd be looking for opportunities. Mm -hmm. um, Q1... GDP growth figures for US came negative. Yep. Do you see Q to be Q2 to be the same? I don't which know. Means, I'm, go, yeah, go. Which means recession, which means what for the markets? Right. So I will say for what it's worth, and this is just a weird quirk of cultural whatevers, the US don't have the same definition of recession as we do. So in Australia, two negative quarters in a row is a recession. Over there, they actually have, a, they have an official body that literally decides when a recession started and when it finished based on some qualitative and a, and a group of quantitative numbers all whacked together and kind of whatever. Uh, so using the Australian definition, yes, that would be a recession. Here's, here's what I think. So there's two. I have two thoughts. The first is on a, on a philosophical level. If an economy grew at 1% a year for three years, it'd be about 3% higher at the end of that period. If an economy grew at 8%, then declined at 3%, then grew at 5%, it'd be 10% higher in three years. And you mm -hmm. ask yourself, which economy would you prefer? Now, if your job is to maximize the size of the economy and the overall well-being of its people, you say, I'll take the 10% one. But that second one has a recession, the first one doesn't. So which is the better economy? Now, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a little more complicated than that because recessions put people out of work and they close businesses and, and there are more far-reaching ramifications. So maybe... 1% every year and a 3% total rather than a up, down, up, down outcome is probably better. Maybe it is. But it's worth... So the reason I say that is because part of the US recession is that last year's economic growth was so stupidly strong. A lot of makeup from the previous year, we had COVID. And to pull forward from this year where people went, I'm going to go and spend that money now because I've got it. This year, time, this time around, they don't go and spend that money again because either they haven't got it or they've already spent it. They've already gone on the holiday, bought the couch, replaced the TV. Mm -hmm. So there is something to that question of is there a recession? For my mind, the bigger kind of question is, are we thinking about this properly? Because if you think through that, then I think the US economy is going to be much bigger in 2023 than it was in 2019, 2020. But we've had that, you know, it, it's been a jagged ride. Um, what does it mean for the market? I, again, mate, I think 
the market would be mad if it if it responded um, if it responded anywhere meaningfully to that sort of number, given we already expected. Do I think it's going to be negative? Probably yes. Not with any confidence. I don't do predictions as a general rule. Um, I, I honestly answer, I don't know. But if you again, you're doing the crazy man with a gun at my head question. Um, <laughs> the answer is probably yes, because for exactly that reason, that last mm-hmm. quarter or that same quarter last year was so strong coming out of recession. Mm-hmm. I came out, sorry, I came out of COVID. It's like, well, you know, we've seen companies that you look at um, JB Hi-Fi. JB Hi-Fi, the August, September last year, had a terrible start to the financial year because the year before, everyone bought standing desks and computer monitors and home, screen, home TVs and webcams, whatever else you bought to work from home. Mm-hmm. Was JB Hi-Fi a terrible business? No. Should we have expected it? Absolutely, yes, because we knew what happened over that period. So we shouldn't have been surprised. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the market should know that. The market should already price that in. Will it overreact? Again, possibly, mate. I really don't know. Um, but I think if it's doing its job of looking forward, it will know, A, there might be a recession coming, and B, it's largely not a, uh, it's not a structural recession. It's one of those just simply last year's comp was so hard to top that there's just a, a slight decline and that's the way things are. So I think mm-hmm. that's I think that's probably likely. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't expect it to be a surprise and I wouldn't, it, the market shouldn't overreact to it, but markets overreact because that's what they do. So it, it's very possible, yeah. So Scott as a person is obviously a value investor who's a, plays a long-term game, whether it's five years, 10 years retirement, right? But if you were to pick what sector will see the most momentum? So momentum versus growth, essentially, is what we're talking yeah. here. Yeah. Which sector was to which which sector was to see the most momentum, according yeah. to you? Is it tech, or is it commodities, or is it? We're talking share price momentum or business momentum or both. Share price. Actually, give me both. The fundamentals are easier, right? Because Again, momentum, you've got to work out what the crowd's going to think rather than mm-hmm. what's actually going to happen. So it's, mm-hmm. it's this kind of bluff and double bluff, right? I think mm-hmm. you're going to think that I'm going to think that you're going to think the tick's going to grow, so I'm going to buy the shares. <laughs> I like that. Um, and that's exactly all it is, Matt, because it, you know, it's going to go up if I think it's going to go up, but if I think it's going to go up, you might already think it's going to go up. So you buy it first, and then it's all like, you know. Um, Becomes a pyramid scheme before you. Well, and, and then eventually it falls over, and people go, I wonder what happens. Like, when well, you all got stupid and, and try to guess what other people thought rather than actually fundamentally valuing the business. I should say, by the way, I don't define myself as a, gro- a value investor. I'm not a growth investor either. I don't I don't belong in one camp or the other. Um, mm-hmm. I do, I probably sit somewhere in a kind of growth at a reasonable price. Not many people identify with that label anymore, but I'm kind of in that space in the, in the middle. Um, momentum. Business momentum, I absolutely think that the a lot of the technology-based businesses are still growing their top line a million miles an hour. And as long as they have the ability to raise cash or run out of their own cash reserves, because that's a big part of the inflation and interest rate problem is we saw two grocery delivery businesses in, in Australia fold in the last month because they just really couldn't raise any more capital from their founders. And so, well, they're, they're funders, so it's not founders, they're funders. Um, so if you run out of cash, all bets are off anyway. But if you look at the business momentum of some of these new disruptive businesses, they are really, really impressive. And eventually, if they can keep themselves afloat and not run out of cash, that momentum is going to turn into profits. And while we're all looking the other way or worrying about sentiment and share prices, they're going to, they're going to keep doing their thing. So I think momentum, the business momentum behind these guys is huge. I think it will continue. Um, but you're going to have to have a, uh, you know, a cast iron stomach for volatility and everyone, the market yelling at you every single day, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're an idiot. 
And you got to be like, you know what? I know you don't like it right now. The business is going to be good. It's going to grow. I'm going to hold it. And I'm going to wait. And that's hard. That's hard, man. But that, so that's the, that's the business momentum piece. Share price momentum. I don't know. You're asking me to guess what the rest of the market's going to think. I don't do it as an investor. I never, ever have. And I, so I don't have a, a good ear for it or a good eye for it. Um, if I was to... Momentum always works until it turns around, right? So right now, the, the honest, the, the short-term answer is always whatever the market currently thinks, expect it to keep thinking that until it doesn't anymore. Mm-hmm. So if I was going to look for momentum, I'm thinking oil prices. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm thinking value stocks, as in like the, 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 the kind of, you know, flight to safety stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so would I be surprised if oil continued to rise and the drillers did kept doing well and the consumer staples, you know, Woolies, Coles, um, some of the healthcare staff kept doing well? No, I wouldn't be surprised at all. So by definition, if you ask me what, you know, what momentum is like, I'm likely to say in the short term, it's probably what we're already seeing. Because mm-hmm. until that weakens and goes away, then, you know, it's like the tide. The tide keeps coming until it stops. So if the tide's halfway in, expecting it to turn around right then is, is, a, is probably a tough, a tough argument and a tough bet to make. But again, I, I want you to know, I want your listeners to know really, really clearly, I don't do that at all. I never have as an investor. So it's, it's a speculative view because you ask for, ask for an answer and that's my, that's my best guess. Um, mm-hmm. But my honest answer is I don't know and I wouldn't ever trade on it personally. And so I'd hate mm-hmm. you or your listeners to do the same. Fair enough. Um, that's all I had, Scott. Sure. Any any wrap-up thoughts from your end or anything else that you would like to add? I, I, I think we'll probably go back to where we started, if you don't mind, which is that uh, if I if if we've got people who are who are listening now and thinking, man, you know, the market's tough. Um, I'm kind of freaked out right now. I'm losing money. Um, I'm not sure what to expect. All the all the news coming down the pike is bad. Uh, I, I would remind you that we are probably somewhere like April, May, June last uh, 2020, right? Uh, now maybe it gets worse before it gets better. So maybe we're not. Maybe we're in maybe we're in mid March for all I know. Um, mm-hmm. But but if you think back only those two years to a time when no one could imagine a time when shares went up again, that we kind of all expected the worst, or at least share prices expected the worst, and were priced accordingly. If you go to every single bear market crash slump before that, it's exactly the same all over again. And mm-hmm. the best bet in investing has always been for 120 years, and I think will always be, that businesses find ways of being better, of solving new problems or solving old problems in a better way, and of delivering a business improvement over time. Mm-hmm. And if those things are true, then giving up on capitalism at the time when it seems darkest is going to be a bad move. And in mm-hmm. fact, the reverse is true that when everyone is hating on the market, when everyone's hating on the stock, not every, not every company will bounce back, but when everyone's hating on the market, because right now it feels terrible, look back to the, to the lowest point or some of the lowest points of every slump and crash over the last 30 years and say, man, that was a good time to invest. Even on the way down, it was a good time to invest because yes, it got worse and then it got better and then a lot better, and then a lot better, and then a lot better. Over 30 years, the uh, all odds has gone from uh, Vanguard numbers from 10 grand to 160 grand. Over 30 years, but nothing other than holding through all of the stuff we've just talked about, including the uh, COVID there, that's in those numbers. So um, my, my, my closing thought is don't get too clever, don't get too scared, don't get too active, just do the simple things and do them really, really well over and over and over again. And time has suggested, I think will always suggest, that's the best way to build serious wealth. It's, it's when you feel like puking. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, look, really appreciate that, Scott. Enjoyed the chat, actually. 
Um, always good to have a knowledgeable person like you on the show. So to the listeners, none of this is financial advice. Do your own research. Play safe, stay safe. Don't over leverage. And we will see you guys next time. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Jess.